Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 30, The Derision of Religion. I'm broadcasting live, well, live for me, from the Power of Change World Shedquarters here at Blacksburg, Virginia. My good friend and co-host Jesse Fury is on the road today to a pastor's conference in Pennsylvania. He'll be rejoining us here soon on the Underground, uh, probably in the next couple of weeks. We're actually pretty excited because we have an episode that we're working on related to culture. Jesse's actually done some really good research and just waiting on me to read some of my books and make myself feel ready to go on that. But well, while we're heading to an episode on culture for a couple reasons, first of all, the name of our podcast is The Gospel Underground. What we mean by that is gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for sin, to manifest and bring the kingdom of God, the rule and reign, to bring back people into covenant into a relationship with God, the good news, right, that transforms people and communities. We're also called the underground because there is a certain social phenomenon where things can either be top-down or grassroots, bottom-up. We kind of like the approach of the underground. In other words, we're just in a shed here in Blacksburg, but trying to create uh, content and a little bit of a movement, a way of posture, a way of standing in culture where we stand as servants, not as leaders, not as overlords, but as servants of Jesus uh, in what we call the borderlands between the church and the culture. Now, the concept of borderlands, right, we'll go into this a little bit on our cultural episode, but there's always a place where you have two spheres overlapping, right? The church, right, God's people, and the culture, which is an amalgam and a swirl, if you will, of ideas and artwork, both popular folk uh, as well as high-cultured, as well as uh, the various religions and philosophies that kind of flow around us. And so our hope is to create a voice, create a dialogue where we help others to think well as they interact in these overlapping spaces, whether you're coming to this podcast as a person of faith in Christ or as someone who just has questions or maybe is a little bit skeptical, that we hope to create conversations around various interactions in uh, the culture as as a Christian or as someone who is asking questions about the Christian faith. My own story and testimony, life has kind of a been one of overlap. I mean, I became a believer in Christ at around age 20 as studying physics at the University of North Carolina. And it's always been a concern to help communicate the faith once for all entrusted to God's people, as the Bible says, to those who are far from it. And so over my uh, you know, over 20-year career, I guess, in ministry after college, you know, I've taught worldview to athletes. We created a whole project in an atheistic nation in Eastern Europe where we took uh, American athletes, primarily from the Ivy League, to a very secularized nation to teach uh, worldview, Christian apologetics, and then also interact with people who had a very different view of life and the world. And so even when I was in Nashville at a large church in the Bible Belt, We started these things called intersections, where we looked at uh, various topics where our faith might intersect with the culture. And certainly church planting in the Northeast, very much smaller percentage of kind of maybe Bible-believing Christians and lots of different viewpoints of the world, beautifully uh, swirling around in culture. And we sought to preach and teach and share the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who saves 
with people there in the northeastern United States. And so uh, this is kind of our perspective right here on the underground. We want to be helpful in these borderlands. So we're going to have an episode coming up here soon uh, on culture. What is it? How do we flow in it? Uh, How do we influence it? How does it influence us? How we might love and serve in these borderlands? Well, today I've just got a quick episode for you. Um, Got a quick segment, Ruts and Butts, uh, and then a, a main topic, which I've simply called the derision of religion. Well, our Ruts and Butts segment here on the underground is kind of fun. It stands for Ridiculous Things Under the Sun and Beautiful Things Under the Sun. This is a takeoff of a phrase from the Old Testament wisdom literature book of Ecclesiastes, where uh, the preacher, the author of that book, talks about how life is under the sun. And that just means life here on the earth, right? Uh, And there are ridiculous things abounding in this world, and there are beautiful things. The ridiculous thing I have for you today is an article from the end of September from the New York Times. It's written in a column called The Ethicist, where it's kind of like a maybe a deeper-than-Dear Abby kind of thing where you ask, hey, ethically, what should I do in this or that circumstance or scenario? And this simply one is called, Should I Go to a Gender Reveal Party? And here's what, uh, th- this is an anonymous question written into The New York Times. Name withheld, person from New York wrote this. Here's the question. A close relation is pregnant with her first child and having a gender reveal party. Yay! She is overjoyed with the addition to our family, as am I. However, I am adamantly opposed to attending a gender reveal party because it violates, pay attention, my moral code. I have worked in activism my entire professional life, and though I am cisgender, uh, for those uninitiated, that means that uh, this person... Gender applies to their biological sex or corresponds to. I have strong feelings about gender politics and equality. Gender reveal parties where parents and guests learn a baby's gender together violate my values because they reaffirm society's gender binaryism and inadvertently perpetuate the stigma against non-binary genders. I know I will never experience firsthand the challenges of being gender nonconforming, but when I think about how I might feel, I would be very hurt knowing my parents had a gender reveal party for me before I was born with my incorrect gender. I know the non-binary community faces much deeper, more urgent problems than this hypothetical situation, but even so, I have a moral aversion hear the strength of that, to helping affirm a society's gender binaryism. Should I attend the party? Name withheld New York. Well, friends, what we have here is a person, obviously, in their own moral view, is more righteous than their relative who's having a gender reveal party. Obviously, they are good in their views, and they have a moral aversion. That's a strong moral reaction against these parties. Well, another observation is this person is convinced that they have the good view of life and anyone who has an opposing view has kind of a, 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 a wrong view of life. And so should I go to a gender reveal party? Well, the moral outrage of it. Of course you shouldn't go if it is wrong. Nobody would say, should I go to a Nazi reveal party? Of course you shouldn't. It's wrong. My observation here and why I think this is ridiculous How fun is our world becoming? Now, once there was this paradigm, uh, life-shaping reality, right, of words shared perhaps, it's a boy or it's a girl. And now 
these phrases are relegated by certain moral codes, so to speak, to be injustices, and you're perpetuating an evil, cisgendered, cisnormative paradigm by going to see whether the balloons are pink or blue. Now, listen to me. I've seen on uh, your Instagrams out there some gender reveal parties. Man, they're getting a little bit out of hand, right? Over the top, expensive. You got to remember, you got to put these kids through college, right? You're going to have to pay for laser tag birthday parties for when they're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And overspending on your gender reveal party, right? Well, that might be ridiculous too. But look, friends, put on some pink socks, put on some blue bow ties, and thank God for little boys and girls that he is sending into the world. Otherwise, let's not be ridiculous. Beautiful thing. Well, I got to engage with something quite beautiful, and you're going to think I'm very nerdy for this. Uh, this week, where I flew down to it, the Atlanta, Georgia metro area, uh, to attend a, a lecture on uh, artificial intelligence. You guys who have been listening to the podcast here for a while know that we are interested in such things because that is in the borderlands between the church and culture. It was a lecture on artificial intelligence by a gentleman named John C. Lennox. Now, I'm going to read his uh, CV from his website, John Lennox, L-E-N-N-O-X.org. I'll put it in the show notes for you. Here's his uh, bio, if you will. John Lennox, professor of mathematics, Oxford University, is an internationally known speaker on the interface of science, philosophy, and religion. He regularly teaches at many academic institutions, including said business school, Wycliffe Hall, and the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, as well as being a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. He has written a series of books exploring the relationship between science and Christianity, and he has also participated in a number of televised debates with some of the world's leading atheistic thinkers. Well, it was fantastic, and I might say beautiful, to hear uh, an Irishman give a lecture on should we be afraid of artificial intelligence, and he did a great job. And, and listen, friends, this is not, this was not, in fact, I was hoping it was going to be a little bit more academic, a little more technical. It was not a technical lecture. It was more like for, for a Sunday school crowd, you might say, those who are uninitiated, in the uh, scientific and philosophical world of AI uh, and introducing the various uh, distinctions we might uh, use to understand what is actually happening in the area of com computational sciences uh, and artificial intelligence and introduce those to a wide audience. So I want to recommend this lecture to you. If you go to Ravi Zacharias International Ministries website at rzim.org front slash live, there is a YouTube of the whole evening, both the introduction to the speaker, which was fantastic, as well as his lecture, and then a Q&A at the end. Um, he has a new book coming out, too, that I would like to recommend um, that looks fantastic, and it's, a, it's, it's entitled, Can Science Explain Everything? And I heard today on a podcast, uh, Dr. Lennox uh, talking about this book, and basically he, his thesis is this, uh, science is very good at explaining certain things, certain kinds of things. But it is absolutely terrible at explaining everything. There are other things in life and areas of inquiry and study, philosophical reflection, religious teachings and truths that must be evaluated that also contribute to our understanding of some things. And science does not explain everything. There's a ridiculous thing. Have your gender reveal parties, friends. There's a beautiful thing. A, a scholar, a Christian scholar who loves the Lord with all his mind 
and is contributing to our discussion here in terms of artificial intelligence. Well, today I have a very short main topic for you. I've simply called this the derision of religion. Now, this is going to be a little bit strange because what provoked me to look at this topic was actually an article in the Atlantic magazine, theatlantic.com, that I actually thought was a very good article. The article was the problem with hashtag believe survivors. It's important to listen to those who come forward and also to those who are accused. Now, this is an October 3rd this year, 2018, just a week or so ago, article by Emily Yof. She's a contributing editor to The Atlantic. I think it's a really good essay. And basically, her thesis is just because someone accuses someone of something, um, we can believe them, but if they make a specific accusation against a person, an individual, uh, then justice demands that those accusations be uh, vetted, confirmed, corroborated. And so both those uh, in our society, right, who, who maybe have been abused and those who have been accused ought to be listened to in, uh, in these sorts of exchanges. Now, I'm not going to get into, right, the specifics of the Kavanaugh stuff and, and the accusations there and all the painful, painful display that we saw on all sides of the political uh, spectrum surrounding that Supreme Court process. But in this article, Emily Yoff, she makes a strange statement. I want to read it to you because, again, I agree with most of what she's saying here. But then she throws in this little line that I'm just perplexed about. Let me read it for you. She says this, even as we must treat accusers with seriousness and dignity, we must hear out the accused fairly and respectfully and recognize the potential lifetime consequences that such an allegation can bring. If believing the woman is the beginning and end of a search for truth, then we have left the realm of justice for religion. Now, most of that makes sense to me when I read that sentence until I get to the end. And I'm saying, what does that mean if we've left the realm of justice for religion? I mean, obviously there. There could be many explanations for what she means by that. It could be some sort of backhanded remark towards religion, right? It could mean something like a historical reference that she doesn't mention uh, to witch trials or inquisitions or unfair uh, procedures of justice or miscarriages of justice done in the name of God. Perhaps it could be that. Or, or perhaps she could mean that religion has a weak evidentiary justification for truth claims, perhaps? I'm not sure. Perhaps uh, a tweet by Miss Yoff that same day could give us a little bit of clue to what she means. Her tweet on October 3rd said this, Those who come forward to report sexual assault must be treated with seriousness, dignity, and respect. Those who are accused deserve a neutral and impartial process. Justice for all requires fairness not automatic belief. So maybe maybe this is what she's getting at with religion. Religion is just kind of this automatic belief in something without evidence or without a search for truth. Well, if that's the case, um, 
I object to that definition of religion quite strongly. And so I didn't understand why the view of religion was used here when um, we could have just said we've left the realm of justice for something else. But it seemed like um, religion was to be seen as some sort of negative thing. I find this ironic, this kind of bifurcation, the splitting into two of justice and religion being in two different realms. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that uh, historically, judicial uh, philosophy, our ideas of justice, right, have very much been coupled with the religion of a people. Even in the Supreme Court chamber, right, there, there, are, there, is, a, there is an artistic carving that includes Moses uh, with, with commandments in his hand, in fact, with Hebrew writing on them, uh, and Muhammad, uh, the prophet of Islam. This idea that lawgivers somehow were separated from their religion and their religious philosophy is bizarre historically. Um, in fact, one of the things that this article is asking for, um, and I think is wise to ask for, is anytime someone is accused of something, there ought to be certain evidence brought to bear. There ought to be certain corroboration of a, an accusation that's necessary. This is interesting to me because in the Old Testament law, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, right? You read this. This is Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so, is that religion? Is that uh, to the kind of evidentiary support we want Discarded? No, I think that that is a very good principle uh, that we should not just take uh, the views of one person. But when things are corroborated by multiple people and various stories all kind of line up, then accusations uh, have much more power and justice is served, not in spite of religion or not running into a different realm but certainly uh, religious philosophies have cared about justice deeply over the years. Now, why would she choose to write that way? Uh, and, and what I, again, I think is a, a very helpful article. Well, there, there seems to be an implicit bias towards religion uh, from certain academics or cultural uh, positions in society Um Obviously, I don't know uh, the author personally. I do know from her, her internet present that she was educated at a Northeastern university. And universities, uh, more and more today, are places where um, religious ideas are less and less taken seriously. In fact, uh, there is actual hostility towards particular religious philosophies and ideas in America's University. I'm going to quote from a book that I have here by uh, Dr. Bradley R.E. Wright. Uh, Dr. Dr. Wright is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Connecticut. He, he's a researcher of American Christianity, has his PhD from the University of Wisconsin. And so he lives in this academic world. And there's a quote on page 206 of his book where he says this, so if evangelicals really want to find a place where they are thought poorly of, 
Okay, this is out of a book called Christians Are Hate-Filled Hypocrites and Other Lies You've Been Told. Uh, He actually uh, looks to shatter the myths from the secular and Christian media uh, that say how people uh, maybe view or talk about Christians. And much of the book says, you know, a lot of the things we hear about how people view Christians, maybe it's different after 2016, uh, is just wrong. Statistically, doesn't hold out. And there's actually not this big uh, downward view uh, of people of faith, but there is one place, he says, where this is the case. So he says this, so if evangelicals really want to find a place where they are thought poorly of, go to college. With no little irony, the faculty of Americans' colleges and universities, under the banner of tolerance and diversity, but this may not be extended to all religious groups. In fact, whether intentional or not, American college campuses may have fostered climates of open hostility towards evangelical students, faculty, and staff who display their religious beliefs. Now, he's quoting from a uh, 2007 survey done by the Institute for Jewish and Community Research. And one of the questions that was asked on this uh, survey was to ask faculty members if they had negative feelings towards a certain religious group. 53% of faculty at universities reported to having negative feelings towards evangelical Christians. 22% had negative feelings towards Muslims, 18% negative feelings towards atheists, 13% towards Catholics, 9% towards non-evangelical Christians, 4% negative towards Buddhists, and 3% negative towards Jewish religion. Now, this study doesn't doesn't show outright prejudice, right? Um, but it seems like, right, the sentiment of, towards the largest religious group in America borders dangerously close on prejudice or bigotry. So I don't know if uh, saying we've left the realms of justice for religion uh, just seems acceptable. Uh, perhaps because people believe that religion is kind of the realm of fairy tales or not serious justice, as if some view of justice just fell out of the air into secular people's university minds, and religion is kind of the the realm of of a non-serious justification of truth claims. This is unfortunate, but does happen. It's actually happened in my own life. Um, I was certainly not shy when I became a Christian as a university student, and I actually went back to take philosophy courses years ago um, at a large university, very near to where I live today. Uh, And I was taking philosophy, one, because I was primarily a science and mathematics, computer science undergraduate. So I took a lot of physics, a lot of programming, electronics, hardware, lots of mathematical classes. Uh, but I, but I, but I didn't take a lot of my undergraduate in philosophy. Certainly not in philosophy of religion or history of philosophy. And so I was taking classes at another university, kind of for fun, I guess. And I'll never forget in a Greek philosophy class the professor mocking the Christian view of the inspiration of the Bible. Like, oh, did you guys know God speaks Greek? And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you believe that that God speaks one language and he must speak uh, Greek or maybe Hebrew. Or if you're Muslim, God speaks Arabic. And he was just kind of ripping on 
religious ideas. And so well, I was very familiar with the Christian doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible, and I said, well, it's not quite that we think God speaks Greek, but God inspired various authors of the New Testament through their own biography and vocabulary and historical situatedness to write things that he inspired for our edification, teaching, and instruction. So his words flowed through human words in a confluence using the Greek language at the time of the, uh, the Roman Empire to give us, right, the inspired words of the New Testament. Well, he wasn't uh, really ready for that answer, I don't think, but it happened several times throughout the class. There was like this uh, free reign on Christianity. Uh, This happened to be right during September of 2001, uh, where the professor came in and started ripping out the problem of evil, one of the philosophical objections that people have to theism or faith in God. You know, if God is all good, he would want to get rid of all evil. If God is all powerful, he has the ability to get rid of all evil. There is evil, therefore, there is no uh, all good, all powerful God. Of course, uh, triumphantly stating such things in class seem, from a position of authority, definitive, and certainly um, I had questions about that. Well, what if God has a good reason for allowing certain types of things to exist in the world? If he has a good reason, uh, then certainly it would not generate the contradiction in philosophy that he was wanting to present to uh, the 18 to 22-year-olds, the majority who made up that undergraduate class. So what are we to do when we hear religion kind of derided, uh, either openly or just kind of cast aside? Well, my counsel uh, to all of us is to not overreact, don't get crazy, uh, don't pick fights with people. One of the my favorite verses in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. I call this good old GNR. I grew up as a teenager listening to a lot of GNR, uh, but this means gentleness and respect in our interaction with people. And one of the best ways we can do that, when somebody makes a claim, say about, well, you've left the realms of justice for religion, I believe that we can calmly, clearly ask questions with people in order to uh, get to what they really mean and seek understanding together and perhaps help them see their original conceptions were maybe off base. So justice and religion, do you think there is justice without truth? Where does truth come from? These kind of questions will get to more important matters and certainly keep us from just starting fires with people who have a caricature of what they think religion is, and we certainly don't want to be part of confirming that by simply saying ignorant things. So being patient, listening well, asking good questions, and then helping people see that perhaps justice and religion, for example, aren't so separate. After all, the question is, what is true? What is good? What is right? Where does that come from? And then how can we live our lives in accord to that and then treat others in a similar way so that we aren't being unjust or oppressive, but yet engaging people as image of God, showing them the love, respect that they deserve. From time to time out there, you may run into things either in reading things online or some media production or movie or film or maybe a book or an article uh, that might seem quite off to you in terms of the way faith is being presented. We'd love to engage that with you. We'd love to uh, know what you're hearing and reading out there in the borderlands. So please send them to us at info 
at gospelunderground.org. We love hearing from folks out there, and certainly those issues that you confront that maybe be a little bit of a head-scratcher for you. We would love to be of service to you. Hey, guys, if you hadn't reviewed us on iTunes, we are currently taking five-star reviews. They're growing in number as well as uh, the Gospel Underground continues to serve and help us engage in the borderlands between the church and culture. The Gospel Underground is a joint production of Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House. Send your comments, feedback, and or questions. Send us those questions in the borderlands to info at gospelunderground.org. We are a dialogue taking place in those lands overlapping between the church and culture. We want to see you out there. Peace.